0: Welcome to episode 134 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined once again by my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hello, Ben. How are you doing? And as this offseason is heating up slash almost halfway over
1: Four Sundays until Hopman cup. You guys
0: oh, too soon.
1: Yeah, that's happening. So yeah, I actually, I don't know if you've done it yet, Ben, but I've booked my flights down to Australia finally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a whole ordeal. That was really weird. But, um, did you remember so to, that's all logged
0: down. Did you remember to get your visa?
1: I have, I know to get my visa. I have not done it yet. Okay. My electronic visa. So I will do that before I leave for sure. Um, yeah, if anybody knows anything about Air New Zealand, let me know what I should be expecting, because that's what I'm flying down there. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, so that – but, you know, booking the flights and actually having all the dates lined up and actually sitting there and staring at your calendar for, like, 90 minutes to two hours trying to figure everything out, that um, made it very real that this off season will be over very, very soon.
0: It's always a daunting one to book. It's, like, the one that you know you're going to pay a fair amount of money for regardless – the Australia trip and it's so long and there's so many different options that are weird. I mean, didn't you, so did, weird. didn't you have one option last year, Courtney, that like took you through, I want to say like Brunei or something. Yeah. Yeah.
1: There was the Brunei option, which was crazy. There are all these super cheap flights that you may basically take you around the world the opposite way yeah. through China and the middle East <laughs> oh, to get wow. to Australia, which are like, like something like 40 to 50 hour basically itineraries yeah. which are insane and given my experiences flying through china i've decided you know what you don't just casually fly through china it's just not worth it your <laughs> luggage is going to get hosed like just avoid that um i've never flown through the middle east but i was not feeling it this year i'm wanting to do yeah. see the problem the problem the that i found yeah you're on the east coast but the, the problem that i found for this year is because everything's so so early That in order to get down to Brisbane at a respectable time, like either you have to be on the plane before the new year, which I don't want to do, you have to be on the plane like while the new year is happening, which I didn't want to do. So I'm like flying out on January 1st in the evening, which kind of bums me out just generally. I don't know. I just don't want to start my year on a plane. But um, but even flying on January 1st means that I don't get there until, like, Sunday, which the tournament starts on Sunday. So that's a little bit frustrating. But um, That's so funny because
0: I had the exact opposite reaction. When I saw there was a flight that could keep me on the plane during New Year's Eve, I was like, yes, take this. Because I hate New Year's Eve. It's, like, my least favorite holiday by far.
1: I don't like it. I just don't – there's a part of me that's, like, this – not karma thing or energy, but just, like – you know, how you start your year is going to be like what happens with the year. And I just don't want to be on a plane that happened to me. Well, actually, you know what, maybe it's not a bad thing. Cause that happened to me in 2011. I was on the plane to Sydney during new year's as the clock struck zero, whenever we hit the international dateline, line, whatever. And I ended up getting my SI job a few months later. So, <laughs> and I was unemployed at the time. So maybe, I don't know, maybe I've made a poor decision. Maybe I should have, uh, you know, been in the air and then I would have been optioned you know, I could have optioned a book or something <laughs> by of this year. Who knows?
0: <laughs> we'll see. But the sky's the limit for us still. Uh, we're gonna talk take a bunch more of your guys' questions, which are always awesome, which include things on the IPTL. Uh we're also gonna talk about the Hall of Fame ballots, which are being submitted soon, and the candidates up for that this year, which I think is a relatively straightforward class, at least compared to last year's, which I know is all over the place. And a bunch more questions. We'll be discussing our exciting new venture end of the show, so stay tuned for that. You ready to dive into this mailbag, Courtney?
1: Kickstart my heart, Ben. All right,
0: here we go. IPTL is going on. We got a question about this from Adam Perugino, who asks us, I've only been following tennis for a little over a year, and I'm wondering if the IPTL is something worth paying attention to. Is it just an excuse for players to take a ridiculous amount of group photos? (laughs) (laughs) This is the perfect question, because it seems like It's not that selfies are a corporation, but if they were, they would be the title sponsor of IPTL.
1: Very true. Very true. Um, Is IPTL worth paying attention to? It's super entertaining. I think that the people who do pay attention to it are totally entertained by what they get to watch. Um, So that's great. And it's great opportunity to bring tennis to maybe underserved areas particularly i think to the philippines i yeah. think that it's really great that that there's tennis in the philippines also india you know to 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 you know significant places where where we don't have a lot of tournaments and you know so that's really great is it something that i'm personally going to disrupt my sleep schedule over to watch no
0: thousand percent no
1: <laughs> yeah so that that's kind of where it is for me i I kind of am perfectly happy waking up and catching up um, on the IPTL via vines and gifs and selfies and all that sort of stuff and just kind of the fun moments. But I don't think that, you know, any of the actual competitive results matter in any way, shape or form. I don't think that they will give you any insight into how these players are are going to do in 2016 or, you know, in Australia, all that sort of stuff. So that's kind of how I feel about it. It's totally entertaining though. I mean, good for them and um you know if if the players are willing to disrupt their offseason to, to play this thing and um they're happy with it you know i'm happy for tennis players to get paid more money that's fine by me
0: yeah pretty much it, i i do think that anybody who plays in especially who plays the full slate forfeits their right to complain about the schedule of the tour ever
1: yeah um yeah.
0: so i go with that caveat uh, to the extent that's a caveat or a threat or but, whatever you want to make it but-
1: what do you what do you make of the counter argument to that? Because there was that quote from Wim Fazette that was in that Christopher Clary piece on the IPTL uh, or at least on the, the, the length of the season um, where he said, yeah, if you play IPTL, you shouldn't be complaining about the length of the season. Now, I tweeted that and some people came back to me and said, yeah, but and we've seen this before. I think that we've discussed this specific argument before that. Oh, well but you know playing an exhibition takes so much less effort and energy than playing tournaments da 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 i don't think that that is a counter argument that holds much water no simply because this is not like a maria sharapova exhibition which is like literally down the street from her house at ucla like these players have to board planes and travel like thousands of miles yeah and these aren't um,
0: asian players they're going to this continent I mean, almost all of them aren't asian players i should say and they're going to this continent from long distances Dealing with the jet lag. Yeah. There's, and, playing and
1: with jet lag.
0: Losing you know, a can... uh, chance for training blocks. It's not just yep. the rest. They're losing the time to build up strength. I mean, I remember Flavia Panetta saying to me uh, that, you know, she was always at her most muscular at like in December. That's when she had yep. her time. It was when I was doing the body image story. We all know how well that went. And she was saying <laughs> that like uh, she always bolted up and had like trouble like, you know, buttoning her pants or whatever or getting her pants on. It's her like leg muscles were so much bigger in the off season. And so yeah. these players, you know, and that's sort of, that's your training base. And so these players are not just chasing checks and not getting rest. They're undermining their chance to build up this base, which, ha- which has to last them the entire year.
1: Yeah. And it's, 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 it's a bunch of things in addition to that, right? Because even outside of that, if you know, you're playing IPTL, you're probably picking up the racket a little bit sooner than you might otherwise in terms of, Getting you know back into training, maybe cutting holidays a little bit short, taking holidays a little bit earlier, um, whatever it is. But you're just kind of cramming an extra thing into an off season when that should also just be a mental break in addition to a physical one, a time to see family, a time to see friends, just basic stuff. You know, I mean, it's it's a grueling season, and yeah, I, 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 ju- I just think that that is really difficult. Like, I don't have any problem whatsoever with like you know Petra Kvitova playing an exhibition in Bratislava with a bunch of Slovakian players Mm -hmm. or Caroline having an exhibition in Denmark. I mean, that's your home, you know, the commute is like super short. (laughs) Or again, like I said, Maria down in LA. And it's a
0: good chance for for people, especially like a Caroline Denmark, there's no tournament there anymore. It's a good chance to play in front of your home crowd, you know, and that's something people like doing and it's easy and fun. Yeah.
1: Exactly. But when it's like everybody like hopping on these planes and people forget too. I mean, just the travel. Okay. It's one thing to travel to the venue, the first one that you're playing, but then the travel in between, these are significant flights. These aren't, you know, a yeah. quick 45 minute hop and a jump. Like, you know, some of these are, are two, three, four, five hour flights um, to get from one, yeah, one not more, IPTL yeah. match to another IPTL match. So... That's where I start to get a little concerned just because you want that, you know, the tour level events, especially to be, you know, when everything's on the line, you want the players to be at their best. And it's hard not to roll your eyes when you have a player who's complaining about playing injured and you're like, you played an entire slate of IPTL.
0: I remember like, we, we talked about uh, when we talked about her schedule for the tour, and then we both said like, oh, I hope Pliskova isn't playing mm-hmm. IPTL. And of course, she is. (laughs) She is, of course. (laughs) But, you know, whatever. She's doing her. Uh, But Wozniaki isn't, I don't think. Uh,
1: No, there's a lot of key players that aren't. She's not uh, Maria, what she did, and then for one or two matches and came back. But she kind of uh, did it where she was kind of already in Asia. And it was part of this like seven week sponsor vacation IPTL swing that she kind of did. And now she's coming home. Um, Djokovic pulled
0: out, which I think is smart
1: so smart so smart i mean a lot of the top players are playing very abbreviated ones you know like maybe like federer plays like a couple of ties same with rafa
0: he's um, gonna do it later in the year
1: yeah, Murray, stuff like that. So, you know, not everybody's playing the full slate. I just still feel like, again, you know, for those of you who heard my interview with Karolina Pliskova at the end of the season on the WTA Insider podcast, like, she was wiped. And she was talking about how, like, she just wanted a vacation. And this was in Zhuhai when she was still playing. So, but all that said, the paychecks to pay I to play IPTL are hefty. Are like, huge. They are
0: mind-blowing. Honestly, and so, for some
1: of the players, you're just like, I'm sorry, you paid Richard Gasquet how
2: much now?
0: It would be hard to turn that down. I yeah. mean, like, I think, wasn't Songa getting, Songa got like a million dollars for it last year. Yeah. Remember, that was an oft-quoted price. And I'm sure the even more marquee players, like I'm sure Djokovic turned down a ton of money to yep. bail on it this year. And other players take that money, and that's fine. They don't always seem excited about it. And here <laughs> is where we're going to segue to Serena Williams. Who is playing IPTL? In theory, it's her. It's her sort of. She played the exhibition against Caroline Wozniacki, also in Denmark. Now she's over in Asia, getting some checks, playing from what all reports seem like to be just atrocious ball, um, but not not like not as bad maybe as Hopman Cup this year. But did she lose
1: to Nara? She did Am I lose right? to Karubinara. <laughs> <laughs> in IPTL? yeah, And somebody else. Didn't she lose to plus? Lost to plus yeah. But that's,
0: like, yeah. much more respectable than losing to Karimi Nara. Did she
1: beat Caroline in Denmark? See, I haven't... I don't either.
0: know. I don't know. Does, does it I... matter? Do they even keep score? I don't know.
1: Uh, that's fair. I don't know.
0: Anyway, yeah. Serena is there getting her money, and God bless her for that. You can't read anything into how she's doing or how she's recovered, I guess, except for maybe if you turned, tuned into uh, a live chat she did for the IPTL's Facebook page, which was enthralling. And I'm going to cut a lot of the complete silence pauses out of this, just because you don't need to hear nothing. It was a lot of nothing. Can you can you give the visuals, Courtney, for what people are about to see, about to hear?
1: Serena just looked really tired. I mean, and, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much the summary of it. And I would be exhausted too <laughs> if I had to, you know, do that flight and go play some tennis and then hop onto another plane and Hop on to you know to, to take another flight, um, and then to sit down and do a Facebook chat is is pretty tough. A uh, video chat, I guess. But uh, yeah, Serena Williams, maybe not the best person to get to do this Facebook chat. I think at in that moment. No. Maybe another day, but in this moment, she looked pretty wiped.
2: Yeah. So I'm here at the IPTL. Live on Facebook. Here in the locker room is my locker over there. My ratchet bag. We are actually about to uh, to go on. on the court. I'm doing with a tremendous amount of jet lag, but thankfully I don't play first, um, so. I like playing for the Philippine Mavericks. We, we, we're a good team. We're a serious team. We like to win. I need a hairpin, but we do like to win, and we like to do well. Um, but, yeah, so definitely we'll need the luck for later, so thank you very much. Vanilla's great. Ian Seng-a-lang. Seng-a-lang? I'm not good with enunciations. Um, I wish I had time to visit some beaches here, but I don't have time. Do I look tired? So anyway, so we're playing soon. I think my team is actually on the court warming up um, and getting ready to to, uh, go out there. I guess we play Leander today, so um, hopefully I can win another match and do halfway decent. See what I can do. Um yeah. So anywho, you guys, thank you. It's been real. I'm gonna get ready for the match. Get ready to do some some work. Um anyway guys, I'm gonna get ready to go, try to get my feet moving, get some coffee, and get started. Alright, so let's go. Philippine Mavericks.
0: Bye. So that, yeah, that, that, so that was Serena, and that's IPTL. Um, again, it's good if you want to see stars in these big countries. It's not meaningful, I think, if you're in the US. It's probably like Courtney's strategy works. You know, sleep, get your sleep, rest up for the real tennis, and check the vines and gifts in the morning. That's what we're all here for, anyway, right?
1: That's pretty much how I watch tennis, anyway. Just kidding.
0: Yeah,
1: I actually watch tennis, but yeah, it's hard to to kind of vest yourself or disrupt your life over something where the result in and of itself doesn't matter. And it's also has zero predictive power towards what you're going to see in about a month or two. Zero. So yeah.
0: Yeah. Is what it is. And the other thing I will say, just as sort of a WTA fan, I don't like how IPTL is so male heavy compared to world team tennis, how True. they sub out women's doubles for, you know, old, uh, legends? legends double legends, yeah. and legends singles, which makes the teams heavily male skewed and, the only all-women event of the five is women singles. Yeah. I, I find that a little bit less savory.
1: The women do kind of feel like an accessory. Yeah. Which is not, yeah, it, it's it's not pleasant. No. It's it just, I don't know, it feels kind of icky sometimes. Totally,
0: totally. And so for all the, I mean, so much of World Team Tennis, if you ever go to an event, at least the ones in Washington, are, it's all about Billie Jean King's vision and dreams and something. There's some sort of vague sense of, a higher calling in it, which is largely completely overblown, but IPTL has none of that. Not that it needs it, but it just doesn't have doesn't pretend to be anything but a fun cash grab. And cash is fun, I guess, so
1: Cash can be fun.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh speaking of other things that are fun, are Hall of Fame ballots fun, maybe? Not the first word I would use for them.
1: They can be. Yeah, I didn't like last year's. This year's seems kind of fun. Last year's Just because I feel like this
0: year's is a little more positive. Last year's was tough. I mean, remember we had a tough I think we like gave totally different votes for last year, but last year was four people, all of whom had won uh, two slams each, which is generally considered right around the cut. It was uh
1: Moresmo. Moresmo,
0: Pierce, Kafelnikov, and Bruguera. Yeah. Were the four. Of those, I was surprised that only got in. I thought Mary Pierce would get in.
1: I thought Pierce would get in.
0: Yeah, but she did not. And she wasn't, weirdly, she wasn't back on the ballot this year. So I don't know if, like, it works like baseball where she missed some cutoff to get back on the ballot, or she's out for Possibly.
1: Forever. I mean, if peak Pierce is not Hall of Fame worthy, I don't know what is.
0: I am with you. I voted for her.
1: I did, too. Yeah.
0: So this year is a little more straightforward. There's one candidate who's an absolute slam dunk is Justin Enin, uh seven-time slam winner, former number one. She'll have no problems getting in. Marat Safin is also, uh, I would think, a very likely inductee, two-time slam winner, but also a former number one, which I don't, which I guess only Beresina was, or was Kafelnikov number one? No, eh, no, no. And then the third one is Elena Sukova, who is more of a doubles player, which we didn't have any of in the last batch. She had some pretty good singles results, but she's on this ballot for her doubles skills. She. I was looking at her results because I didn't... Obviously, she was before really most of my time, and even when I was around with her, she wasn't somebody all that relevant. She was in doubles. I wasn't following doubles all that much. She had some very odd singles results. I mean, she made four Grand Slam finals in singles, but didn't win, like, any remotely big singles titles. Like, I think her biggest singles title would have been something like a Tier 3. So it's just an odd, odd display of results for her. But anyway, Courtney, what does your ballot look like for this year?
1: Yeah, I mean, I... To me, they're all in in terms of I mean, at least with the three that you mentioned, I, I don't think that it's a question for me. Safin, in addition to just, you know, being a multiple slam winner and, and all that sort of good stuff, he was incredibly charismatic. He brought something to the game. Right. I think that we talked about this last year with respect to the ballot about players who you will always like to me, a Hall of Fame player is a player where I'm like, you came and you played and you left the game changed. Yeah. Like the chain you left, you put fingerprints on the game that we will remember for years. And I think that Safin maybe didn't leave his fingerprints, but he definitely left a few dents, <laughs> uh, some broken rackets and just um, just a charm that uh, that that really helped things along. So so I think him for sure. I mean, Sukov is obviously a difficult one. We can debate it left and right. But I think a little bit kind of almost down the road in terms of like is Sonya Mirza a future Helena Sukova? Like you know, like in terms mm. of a player whose singles career maybe didn't pan out in, in um and obviously Sukova is probably is going to finish with a much better singles career than Mirza.
0: Yeah, Mirza, Mirza also has a long way to go to catch Sukova on Slam total. I think in terms of, I think Sukova won nine women's doubles titles and five in mixed, and I think Sonya is probably about five or six of those combined right now. Yeah, so she's got right, exactly. to wait go to catch up. But,
1: yeah but but in terms of like you know you talk about a name who and a player who played and had her success outside of maybe when i was fully engaged or even was aware that women's doubles was like a thing i think that it would be nice for the, the you know to kind of create that space for you know exemplary doubles careers um to be hall of fame worthy
0: no pam pam shriver is already in yeah which is a big precedent for me so i think on that basis Sukova uh, should go in their players are going to be re- retiring eventually. Doubles players hang on forever, but based on pure numbers, there's no reason. First of all, why like Daniel Nestor shouldn't get in the Hall of Fame for sure, eventually. Yeah. Uh, someone like Leander Pays, Brian Brothers, you know, these seem like Hall of Fame locks to me.
1: Lisa Raymond.
0: Lisa Raymond, yeah.
1: To me, I think so. Yeah. So. so, know, so yeah. Yeah. I I, th- I think that she is a player who she left her mark. I think. Elena Sukova. And I say that simply because one of the big things is like, I never watched her play a tennis match live, probably not at least not that I recall, but I know her name. I know her significance within the sport. I know kind of what she did and that her career was able to cut through kind of the noise and and get to that point, I think is, is pretty, pretty gravy. Yeah, for sure. Let's
0: talk briefly just to round up this group about Justine Ennin, who I don't know if you've ever had any protracted conversations about on the show. She was she got out right before, essentially, we, we both became full-time in the sport. She retired early 2011. Um, I guess, Courtney, if you were media at the Australian Open 2011, you would have been there for her last tournament. I guess I was. Right? She lost to Kuznetsova and then retired mid-tournament. Like, the second week of the tournament, she flew back to Belgium and retired. So she had a very odd sort of career arc in terms of her retirement coming out of nowhere.
1: Oh, my gosh. Now that you're you totally just, like um triggered my memory of that night that she retired. I remember now where I was Talk and what about I was it. doing. How, what's your story? I was yes, you're right, at the 2011 Australian Open. It was my first major that I covered as cr- credentialed. And I was out uh <laughs> this is probably not a good story, but I was out uh with our good friend Alex Willis. I think we were at um the Supper Club.
0: Oh, good good spot.
1: Yeah, it's a bar that's open late. Um so which is place where a lot of people congregate after the tournament uh, days are over and we were there and I think I had my phone off neither of us were checking our phones because we were just catching up and talking and whatever and then we got out and hopped into a cab and as we were pulling away I like looked at my phone and I like I think I yelled out of the cab thing I was like Hannah just retired (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or something like that. And we were both like, huh? And then like, I just remember like driving away and Willis was like standing on the corner, like checking her phone. And we were just both really confused. So yeah, that's now, now you mention it. Now I remember that very, very vividly actually.
0: Yeah. So I guess, I guess, so I mean, Justin Eddins first retirement came when she was number one in 2008. Uh, she came back after, after losing to Nara Safina. So both times it was like she had some loss that didn't make sense to her and she immediately pulled the cord to uh, a russian to a russian yeah um she was number one in 2008 right before the french open she pulled out she came back 18 months later did pretty well in her comeback uh and i think what she gets the most credit for historically um for me is obviously being her size and playing as well as she did it's a huge thing because when you see her i think it strikes you more in person she's just she wee. Is tiny yeah tiny she really is you got to meet her I, for the first time this year i right? did
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. um, She was in Toronto to be inducted into the Rogers Cup Hall of Fame. And um, I was interviewing her when Simona Halep walked in and Halep obviously idolized uh, Justine Ennen. So I actually was the one that took the picture of them that eventually went up on social media uh, because I just was there. And um, and then I was walking with Simona to her press conference. And so we were kind of talking about it. And Halep was saying, yeah, I was like really nervous to meet her. And I was like, so what do you think she likes? And Halep kind of looked at me with like that weird mischievous Halep look that she sometimes has, where she's like, I'm taller. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> you are. And Simona ain't tall. No. So she was like, I'm a little bit taller. I was like, yes, you are. So like, yeah, she is small, Justine. And so it really is remarkable what what she was able to do, no doubt.
0: The other thing that comes to mind for me is how amazingly good she was against Serena. Yeah. I mean, like people talk about, people write these articles. Uh, people f- swoop in and write hot takes about tennis. They usually say Serena's never had a rival. No one's ever been her equal. And I call BS on Lies. that pretty much immediately. Lies. Because in 2007, Serena was doing fine, won a slam that year, and lost in the quarterfinals of the other three majors to Justine Henin, and got kind of drubbed in all of them, including yep. Wimbledon. Um, and maybe that obviously it wasn't peak, peak Serena, if you want to say that, fine. But Justine like stared her down and was a foil to her and a nemesis to Serena in a way that no one else even was. You can say Venus was a bigger rival, Venus beat her more times, whatever. But no, like, no one, like, got under Serena's skin the way that Justin Ennett did. And a lot of that was with, obviously, what happened with them in 2003, the French Open, which turned a lot of people against Ennett forever when she put up her hand and to delay Serena's serving and then denied it when asked about it. Um, and Serena wanted to lose that match. I mean, whether or not that caused the loss is debatable, but... Justine was was ruthless in a, in a way that was definitely like ra- seemed to raise the stakes for women's tennis. I think in a, in a pretty overall positive way. I guess.
1: Yeah, and I and I think that you're right that that there is kind of this weird revisionist history with respect to Justine Henin and, and her rivalry with Serena because I was actually really surprised because, you know, she did uh, she was in Toronto, she was doing press obligations in support of the tournament. Um, that there weren't more questions put to her about how do you beat Serena? Like, you know what I mean? Like yeah. this is the woman who did it and, and she did it pretty uh, regularly in spurts and, and was able to find a way to not just beat Serena when it didn't count, but to beat her when it did count at the uh, at the majors um, where you, and she was littler. And so, so you, there wasn't this idea, of, oh, you need somebody who can hit through Serena like a Kvitova or something like that, like, you know, and and uh, so I was a little bit surprised that, that she was kind of overlooked as being somebody that you go to and say, like, you know, what's what's the the blueprint for success um, against Serena as she is in the midst of this historic run. Um, the other thing as well is that, like, with respect to Hennen, Hennen, I guess probably Celis, Hennen and Hingis, I would say, are the three players that, like, the shorter statured of of players kind of all idolize uh as being like the the models or templates of 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 how to win S- without being that short ones. she's not that short but she was smaller wasn't she then like at the time then like a a graph or even i think she was smaller than Capriotti
0: okay
1: am i wrong uh, maybe i'm wrong but then maybe if not cellas i was trying to be kind with cellas so then maybe just hennen and Hingis as yeah. being two players who seemingly were overpowered or underpowered and um and found a way to do it so
0: No, I'm I'm curious.
1: I'm curious to see how history treats, continues to treat Justine Nenon. Because, you know, there is always going to be that like likability factor that kind of um, undercuts some people's campaigns. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, having talked to her now in Toronto for an extended amount of time, like she was really thoughtful and and I really enjoyed getting her uh, thoughts on things. So, uh, you know, she's mellowed out motherhood and, and retirement and just life. Away from tennis has yeah. mellowed her up. She was very
0: not mellow during her playing days no, for sure. She, she was, was the, the anti-mellow. No, but yeah. I, I totally agree with what you're saying about shorter players, and that Justine Ennin and Hingis. think because Monica Seles is as five ten, so she does not fit. Oh, really? Uh, and taller than Graf is five huh. nine, but really, that's what according to their height listings. yeah, that's what they have. Huh. Uh Okay. <laughs> anyhow, Ennin and Hingis made made it was part of why I like tennis is that you don't have to be a big behemoth person to do well in the sport especially, I guess, in the women's side of the game. I mean, tennis is a a sport that's not the NBA. There's not, like, a height limit. And we got a question about this, actually. (laughs) We got a question on Twitter from Ethan Lee, who asked us, uh, how far will sports science go in allowing players to succeed at greater heights? uh, 6'6", world number one, 6'8". And there is a little bit of that in tennis, but it's not going all that way. And I think players like Justin Ennen, like Martina Hingis, like Simona Halep, uh, like Radvanska, who's obviously, she's like 5'8", but she's very slight. These are important players to know that tennis can still be a craft that can be achieved different ways. It's not an arms race. And it's a lot of sports are going the opposite way from that. I mean, like, even in hockey right now, all the goalies are, like, 6'5". There's this, mm. like, average height of goalies is going way up, and there's no, like, seemingly less and less room for, like, the Dominic Hasheks of the world and, like, smaller guys who just, like, sell out on everything. And I think it's probably happening – in soccer with goalies, too, they're getting taller and taller. like
1: Yeah, they yeah. are getting lankier, so, taller and lankier. Yeah, so
0: yeah. I, I just I like that henna represented that part of the sport for sure. And obviously her game was just pretty, like the one-handed backhand and the slices and everything. She was a very aesthetically pleasing player to watch in her early days. When she came back, she was a ball basher. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, she was very pretty to watch. All right, here are some questions from you guys to round out the rest of the mailbag. Here, this first one is from Tony C., who asks us, Novak and Serena both had incredibly successful years, Serena at the majors and Novak everywhere. That being said, once each team has officially closed the book on 2015, how do they go about setting the levels for 2016, and what would you consider a good follow-up for them? I'm interested in your thoughts on how they approached the 2016 season, given that they won basically everything they entered in 2015, and the challenge of living up to those results. Courtney, let's start with uh, Novak. I think Novak's a little easier. What would what, make a good 2016 for Novak, do you think?
1: I mean, I think that for either player, I mean, if you even come close to maintaining the level that they maintained this this year, that's success. I mean, I don't, I don't think that I think that it's pretty crazy to think that somehow they need to build on their results
2: oh, from 2016. No, I don't think
1: that's that. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's that's a bit of a and that would be a weird reaction to what they did i mean even if they maintained even if they fell short just a little bit i think that it would still be obviously incredibly successful i think that the goal for both players you know obviously if this may not be the goal but this is going to be the thing that if it happens it will have kind of a me it will mean that all the rest of their goals had been fulfilled which is to finish the year number one Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know i think that if they finish 2016 number one that 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 it's more than a successful year it will have meant that they won more slams, um, that they won more titles, that they continued to be dominant and fend off all challengers. So that, I mean, that's to me what I'm looking at. I mean, obviously, you know, you can look at very specific things, specifically with Novak. Obviously, the French Open, if he gets that, or and or a gold medal. I think that those are two things that are that are, you know, quote unquote, missing in his trophy case. Uh, with respect to Serena, I think that it's just continuing on, um, and to to ensure that she has you know, the, the continued motivation that the, the issues that have, um, you know, lingering effects of that lost to Vinci, that, um, that somehow she's able to put it aside. I, I mean, none of us knows whether she has yet, Yeah. you know? Um, so, and we won't know until Australia kicks, uh, kicks off. So, uh, I don't know. That's kind of, that's kind of where I see it.
0: How about you? Well, I think for Novak, I think staying number one, is the main one, obviously the, yeah, The French Open and the gold medal, especially the French Open, because he has a shot at that every single year. The longer he doesn't win that, being one of the very best clay core players, especially with Nadal not being his old self, even if Nadal plays better on clay in 2016 than 2015, which I expect he will, he should be in the conversation for that. And so not winning, that would be disappointing. But he is such a huge, huge lead on number one that I think he should be expected to keep number one. That's the fair goal. If he doesn't win number one, doesn't keep number one at the end of 2016, something will have gone very wrong for him. Totally agree. So for me, that's the bar for him. For Serena, I'm a lot more sort of generous. I really think that winning one slam is the bar that I put for Serena. I mean, she got stuck uh, before when she was at 17, when she was about to equal 12 event ever at 18. And now she, just the one tournament, fluttered when she was one against Vinci, when she was one tournament away from equaling Graf. And so I think so long as she equals Graf in – twenty sixteen gets that one more slam, which I expect she will. But I think that's the fair place to set the bar. And then if he gets two, sets the all time record, that's above and beyond. I think. And remember she's she had to grade serena on a curve because she's getting older and older and older. As much as she was the dominant number one uh on paper for most of twenty fifteen, she's gonna be turning what, thirty five in twenty yeah. sixteen. I think you have to give her some slack on that front.
1: You know, I, I, I would buy into that. I think that you're right. If she if she catches graph. Breath... You know, throw her ticker tape parade. If she gets past graph that is like above and beyond, especially in a season. That is going to be a fairly stressful one
2: yeah.
1: uh, given the the impacted schedule with the Olympics. I think that, yeah, I mean, because if you do look at the, you know, the closer, a closer look at Serena's numbers through 2015, obviously the majors is where everything was at because, you know, yeah, she won the three majors. She finished with five titles, which means she only won two two titles outside of the slams. Uh, that would be what was that Miami and Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. So otherwise there were a lot of withdrawals. There were a lot of retirements. Yeah. Some of that is managing schedules. Some of that is, is picking up little ningles here and there, you know, so it, it's hard to kind of know you can't expect for her to have her, whatever, 2012 season, 2013 season, 2013, the epic season? Think, yeah. 2013, right? Her Epic 2013. I mean, that was just um, on a different level in my opinion, in in terms of just consistency. So maybe we will revert back to, you know, a Serena that that is, again, focused on the majors, which is what she and Patrick have said that they really are focused on is is trying to 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 peak and, and do well there. And, and whatever happens outside of the majors is is not so much their concern. But it is an interesting one, too, because I saw that um, Fortune magazine did or, or Fortune.com did mm-hmm. a uh, a piece where they predicted that Serena was going to pull in tons of endorsements in 2016 based off of what happened in 2015 and I read the little blurb that they had I didn't I don't know if there's more to it or if they're basing it off of pure speculation or if they're basing it off of like inside you know chats with what deals might be in the works I don't know but typically if you're signing more deals you're not playing a light schedule you know what I mean I mean like you you do kind of have to go and keep yourself out yeah be present a little bit more so that's another thing too that i'm kind of curious about is is if that actually comes into fruition if she does try to push herself and if she does push herself does that hinder her at the majors and i don't know but but i all that is to say i think that you i would revise what i said before and i would i would agree with what you said which is one major would be a, a more than successful year yeah and zero would be a, would be a flop zero would be well it would yeah it would be suboptimal okay <laughs>
0: It's <laughs> very generous. I mean, I, I think talking about the endorsement just got me thinking again. Like, I know we talked about this briefly in September, but like, my gosh, the amount of money that she would have gotten had she won the calendar slam, yeah. I mean, just like just on bonus incentives that were probably pre-written in like her Nike and Gatorade contracts beforehand. I We have to be talking about like eight figures. Yeah. Well, yeah.
1: I mean, I remember talking about that like immediately after, not immediately because we were all writing, but, you know, maybe that night or the next day talking about, you know, how many one minute tribute ads that all of these major sponsors had lined up had to get scrapped. Yeah. And I bet you they were rad, (laughs) rad ads. I want to see them. I want to see what Gatorade and Nike had lined up because, you know, those people know how to do some marketing. And it probably was some like you know led like tons of like sporting legends saying like you're a legend or whatever I don't know but it was probably pretty nifty I'm or sure. something like tearjerker y
0: so with like nifty. Yeah.
1: black and white you know uh, uh, a grainy footage that has never been seen before from you know those Compton courts or something I don't know it would have been
0: so cool would have been very cool unfortunately eh, Vinci happens
1: yeah Vinci happens
0: this question is from Carrie A.K.A Nisha Carey which is a tremendous Handled. As some of the focus starts to shift to the next generation of players, is there any effort by either the ATP or the WTA tours to promote LGBT inclusiveness and an environment where players can feel comfortable to be out on the tour? Whether it be creating an ambassador for inclusion role the way the MLB did, Major League Baseball with Billy Bean, or embracing fans and openly supporting the LGBT community like the NHL and other major sports leagues have done. Do you see either tour taking a more active role on this front in the future? Now, according to we've talked about these issues before on the show at various timings, I guess specifically when Jason Collins came out and I guess in the NBA, right? And we're doing it, and we've done it at least one other time on the show, so this is a bit of a rehash. But it's a you know every forty or so shows we can talk about this again. <laughs> what, you know, what what do you think is the state of that and the the obligation of the tours to be supportive of it? Is there an obligation?
1: you know what i it, it's so i think that you're dealing with when you talk about the tours you're dealing with it, it's very unfair to lump them together um simply because of the history of each tour okay. i mean you know you talk about the wta and its history with the lgbt community uh whether it be with you know obviously starting off with with Billie jean king and and martina navratilova anomaly Moresmo and you know other players who have come out over time that that i think I feel like within the WTA locker room, it's not an issue. I mean, there are players who are out. They're just not publicly out. But everybody in the locker room or people within media or whoever, like everybody knows, you know, and they just live their lives. And that's fine. You know what I mean? Like they that's almost, if anything, kind of like a, you know, we talk about a post racial society, kind of like a post like. Not sexual identity, but like it's it, it's just kind of like oh yeah that person's gay. Okay. Post outing
0: society. I mean, yeah, like... post
1: outing society. It, no yeah. one need no. There are a lot of people who don't feel really feel the need to like fly that flag and and be live their lives with you know placard around their necks. They just yeah. want to live their life, and that is entirely their right as well. And and so within the WTA, and when I speak to some of the younger players, I think they're so much more savvy these days than obviously uh, players from ten years ago. I mean social media. We talk about players even from countries maybe who are not exactly a pro LGBT and maybe have very, you know, um, conservative um, and homophobic cultures right. um, because they travel the world. And because they are in that locker room, because they grow up within tennis, specifically women's tennis, you know, they don't. And plus being on social media, all these sorts of things like they're, they're a savvy bunch of kids. Like they're not, I don't see that there's, there's a, a really pronounced level of homophobia within the WTA tour. No, not at all.
0: It, it's a non-event. I mean, like, it, it really is. Obviously, the players are there. I do think it's interesting and a little surprising, I guess, on paper that, I mean, really, for a while in the 80s and 90s, tennis had produced two of the most famous lesbians in the world in, yeah. in Billie Jean King and Martina Navratilova and was sort of associated with that for a while. And now there's, as far as I know, only one out lesbian in the top 100 right now. I think Casey Delac was still in the top 100. Yeah. Even though she's had concussion issues, which which are too bad, we, which are all the best, It's now lesbianism is less visible as it's gained broader acceptance in society, which is a little counter stream, and that's just a whole different discussion. But is it an issue right now? No. no. Not, I mean, obviously, um, yeah. there's still homophobia in the world and on tour, and ATP players making homophobic comments about the women's tour. That still happens, that's still a thing. But as far as the men, as far as the women's tour internally, no they don't do much about it. Could they do more externally? I mean, I will say, like I do think obviously uh, tennis women's tennis especially has a very significant LGBT fan base that's been mm-hmm. the bedrock of the sport for a long time in supporting it and could they do more to include that or market towards that? Maybe, but I admit they probably don't feel the need to because I have that already in their pocket already yeah
2: and,
1: well, and also I think that there's always going to be that concern when you're when you are a league or you are a product of marketing your product to what is kind of a niche, not that like the LGBT community is a niche, but this is something that I know for a fact is, is something that the WNBA struggles with is the fact that, that they have really in a lot of ways, completely marketed their product and, and really been LGBT about specifically the lesbian community and and really building that relationship with the lesbian community and getting like, you know, and, and that is kind of their primary, um, fan base yeah, and in a lot kind of, of ways it yeah. yeah it hasn't necessarily helped them just because you're you're going after a smaller set of fans like you're right unless as opposed to going trying to be a, a mainstream you know marketing to everyone then you're broadening your customer base and your market so from a business side I think that there's a little bit of that I mean going back to your point about about yeah there being only one out um, at least as far as I know as well um, out uh, player in the top 100 I think that so much of that does coincide with again just how women's tennis has exploded in terms of its um, the money that's involved in it, talking sponsorship deals and things like that, and whether or not players want to risk any of that, you know, is 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 really tough.
0: Yeah, although I will say sort of going against the devil's advocate on that a little bit. There's this like snowboarder or something, is that who he is? Like named Gus Kenworthy. Yeah. Who came out recently? And this is like a not a star person before this at all, who really seems to have who have came out and seems to have had a publicity explosion since that happened in a non-Olympic year. No one's talking about snowboarding in 2015 or whenever whatever time of year he came out. And I feel like, especially on the ATP, which is a different discussion, obviously, there would be a theoretical huge first mover advantage in terms of sponsorships and prominence it's, and stuff.
1: Uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think that there's at the same time you see you know, the Michael Sams, the Jason Collins, you know. Jason Collins these... was at the
0: end of his Jason Collins, was... Michael Sam, I buy. But Jason Collins was fading out already when he came out.
1: But again, it, it's not as though, you know, people were rushing. There's so many different, I mean, it's a different, It's a, it's a tough, Ball of yarn to entangle because on top of that you're talking about look if somebody's a winner there's a winner and they're a winner and it doesn't matter if they're straight or gay right champions are champions and you're going to make money what happens is if you're middling in the middle or if you're not the top name and you are does that have a positive impact like which you are arguing with like a Gus Kenworthy for example or, or does it have a negative impact which I would argue is kind of a Michael Sam situation mm-hmm. right where you know, you're not like the best at what you do, you're perfectly fine. And may, does it weigh for you or against you? And these are the decisions that the players have to make, you know, just personally and, and also, you know, drawing attention to themselves, their families, you know, all these sorts of things. It, It's not easy. And um, yeah. yeah, I mean, so that's on the WTA side. On the ATP side, I just, the one thing that I just think about a lot is, you know, obviously in the, there's that organization, Athlete Ally, uh, which is an American-based organization, kind of about, Involving professional athletes to kind of encourage a more LGBT safe and LGBT friendly sports arena, effectively. Mm -hmm. And the three primary players that were like in tennis that were involved in Athlete Ally were Andy Roddick, Marty Fish and James Blake. And none of them are in the ATV locker room anymore.
0: Yeah,
1: And that and that I think has an impact. I think that what you need, you know, much like kind of what maybe the WTA locker room had or has whatever is like somebody who is in there who hears comments and is like whoa dude you can't say that yeah or like hold on let's talk about this like do you gen do you is that what you honestly think like somebody to be in the locker room to check people um not thought police but to to be the countervailing opinion because you know how dudes can get when dudes get together they just run their mouths and they all like are like yeah dude yeah um
0: yeah no everybody we completely yeah yeah we know what you're saying with this stuff has come out with Loja recently, with Stakovsky forever and ever. And there isn't a very loud, active player voice shutting that down. I mean, there isn't. Yeah. I mean, Stakovsky continued to talk about that at the U.S. Open, said, you know, that he trusted there were no top players in the ATP Top 100 because he would see them in the locker room with all these, you know, naked and half-naked guys, and they would get visibly excited, and he would spot them. And it was like, what? <laughs> and, and, and nobody, like, no active player, granted, only a couple were asked about it directly, but the ones who were... Um, really tepid in their responses. And just like, oh, and
1: he's look. still on the player council. Yeah.
0: So there's been no <laughs> consequence for this. So, yeah, there's a huge disparity there, and there's a big chance for somebody to step up, and maybe just no one wants to pick that fight. Maybe there is no true, quote-unquote, ally that's going to go to bat for whatever gay players there are. And maybe maybe there are no gay players in the top 100. We're not sure there are. Math, math would say there would be several. I don't know. It, it's a weird stalemate, and it's uh, something that tennis seems... I agree, it seems behind on. I mean, like, NHL has been much more proactive um, in terms of the You Can Play project and doing things that promote inclusivity among athletes, among players, than the ATP, and WTA for that matter. WTA hasn't been as proactive as NHL has been. Should they be better? Yes. That's basically what I'll say there. Obviously, we talk about each time, for the players, it's hard to blame players, obviously, blame anybody for not directly coming out because especially in tennis, the amount of travel you do, the intermingling of it, you're not just coming out in a fairly contained bubble like Jason Collins was in the NBA, let's say, where he is going to be, you know, playing. He played for the Brooklyn Nets, I think, when he came back, and he's going to be playing in major American cities for his whole time. You know, players who are on the ATP or WTA who might actively come out might want to go play in uh, Doha or you know, somewhere else in the Middle East, I might be more hostile or Russia where there's open laws, uh, very clear homophobic laws or whatever else. Singapore. Not, Singapore, Yeah. Are there in Singapore?
1: I, apparently. Yeah. I heard oh. that like in, I heard that the rule, somebody told me that the rule in Singapore is like that women can walk down the street holding hands, but men can't. Ah, that's just so like open crazy. displays of like lesbian affection are okay, but open displays of like gay affection are not
0: what a middle school rule. That's ridiculous well, you know, whatever. Yeah. Okay. Well, so that's that. And yeah, basically, could the Taurus do more? Sure. Is it WTA does not have any... I don't think they have a problem with it as much as the ATP does. It'd be good to see some current players step up and speak yes. up. Even like someone, like a younger American. I won't name them, so I would put them unfairly in the spotlight. But some younger American or some other Western European or somewhere where it's not a non-issue at this point to step up. And, well, and- yeah.
1: To be fair, I mean, I'm, I'm the one that like asked all the players after Jason came out, Jason Collins came out in Rome, the top players about what their thoughts were about it. And Andy Murray was the most, like he offered the most progressive answer of just like, of course there's people in the locker room that are gay, like, you know, and it's perfectly fine and I don't have a problem with it. And he offered the most like kind of supportive statement of anyone, um, so, I mean, Andy Murray is championing a few too many of the, uh, <laughs> of you know, these uh, these issues these days, whether it be feminism or if he wants to be a gay icon, he can do that as well. Um, but uh, if that's one, if that's another, you know, uh, piece of his legacy, that would be great. But uh, but he, you know, having uh, talked to him a few times about kind of, you know, locker room issues and things like that, he's he's pretty. He is what you'd think yeah. he would be, Andy Murray.
0: No, he's, he definitely fits the profile of who I was talking about. You know, Western European, yeah. forward-thinking, younger player, young 28 but still young compared to Roddick or Blake. Yeah. And it'd be nice to see, to hear more of that if anyone does come up. And it has, there have been openings for this. I mean, Stakowski has given the rest of the field openings to stand up and they haven't. Yep. So, so there you go. Our last question on today's show comes from Ahmed Mahmoud, who asks us about something, an interview you did, Courtney, uh, with Andre Pekovic for the WTA Insider, I guess it was in Zhuhai, and he asks us, what did you make of Andrej Pekovic's revelation about being uncertain what her true calling is? Do you believe we've seen peak Pekovic on court? Do you think she'll have a Panetta run to a slam one day if she sticks to tennis? And on a related note to you both, do you feel that tennis reporting slash writing is your true calling? Or do you still have <laughs> doubts about it at all? Are there other things you feel you could be better at? So that's a wow. personal turn midway through that question. Wow. Wow, that.
1: Let's see. Do I feel like we've seen peak Pekovich? No, I don't think that we have. I think that um, she was on her way to having what would have been a really strong year this year, and was just derailed by injuries and niggles here and there, yeah, and then season, you know
0: badly for her with that.
1: Yeah, and then that spirals out of control into kind of a crisis of confidence. Um, so you know that that becomes tough, and so that. But we're talking about very small margins. I, I don't think that with respect to her game that there are. You know, there's something that's gone horribly awry. Um, it's just some, you know, a, a few things here and there that can be fixed. And she's she's back up there, you know, knocking on the door of the top 10, if not in the top 10. We've seen how fluid the top 10 can be, yeah. especially uh, positions six through 10. There's so, no reason she
0: can't be one of those six through 15 players for a long yeah. time, you know.
1: And if I were to think of like who I consider like a, you know, a top 15 player, I think Pekovic is firmly a top 15 player in my head. When we talk about, you know, her prospects, can, can Pekovic win a slam? Marion Bartoli won a slam. Flavia <laughs> Panetta won a slam. I mean, come Schiavone. on, you know, Skivoni. you know, made Chilich. two finals. Very could, easily could have. Skivoni very easily could have won two slams. Yeah, she could have. Um, she could have beat Lina in that in that French Open final. Chilich won. A, I mean, of course, you know, like Andrea Petkovic is 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 a very good tennis player. She can draws can open up opportunities can present themselves. I mean, she's made a semifinal.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So you know, there there are all of these these little things. But um, you know, in terms of of but in order to do that, everything has to be lined up. And that means your motivation has to be there. Your fitness has to be there and, and a little bit of luck. I mean, I think that one thing that sometimes people don't want to think about, maybe because it takes some control out of, out of out of what you're doing, is that there's a lot of luck involved <laughs> in, in winning majors, in winning tournaments, in doing well um, in yeah. spurts. Um, every once in a while you know, probably once every week, if not more than once every week. So a thing has to go your way to to kind of uh, grease the skids. And and so I think that if if luck breaks a little bit her way, you you never know. But I I wouldn't write her off. That's for sure. No, for sure. Can
0: you just like paraphrase briefly what, what she talked about with you on the WT Insider for those of you who didn't hear that?
1: So when I talked to Pekovic in Zhuhai, she had just lost six love, six love to Carlos Suarez Navarro to end her season. She appeared to have kind of hurt her knee as well. And it was just a really tough way to end what was a very frustrating season for her. And um, so I sat down to talk to her just thinking, well, let's just kind of break down what happened and maybe recap the season. And it kind of evolved into this whole discussion where she um, admitted that you know, she really struggled with finding the passion for tennis this year and that she was starting to doubt um, whether or not she's meant to be like her life calling is to be a tennis player. Yes, she's a very good tennis player. She's one of like, you know, whatever the 20 best at being a tennis player in the world, which how many of us can say that we're, you know, the 20th best at whatever job that we do. So that's incredible. But she was beginning to think, you know, maybe this isn't what I'm actually best at, you know, maybe it's Whatever it is, being a writer, being a reporter, going back to school, art, whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, Anyone who's heard Pekkovich
0: on the shows knows how wide ranging her interests are. She could do so many things. Yeah, those.
1: exactly. And, and I think that many people who have, if you know Andrea Petkovich and have had conversations with her, you know this, that there is a part of, I know for me personally, there have been times where, you know, we get off those, uh, you know, long NCR interviews and I'm like, man, why is she playing tennis? Like, you know, like she would have been an amazing lawyer. She could have, um, you know, gotten a Ph.D. in something. She could be a writer. I mean, she's, you know, she's probably the only person that's on tour that's read everything that Jonathan Franzen and David Foster Wallace have ever written um, and can quote Jean-Paul Sartre and uh, Goethe to you as well. So, you know, she she has a lot of interest. So, yeah, she was going through a bit of a crisis and she was hoping that during this season she was able to find it again, that passion anyway but uh but she 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 said that she 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 did kind of think this year that maybe it was time to walk away from the sport so we'll see what happens in 2016 and and even immediately after 2016 i think the olympics will always be a thing that is going to keep people in the game maybe a little bit longer uh for next year but uh, but i'm looking forward to to speaking with her again and just um catching up and and just checking in and, and hoping that everything is is okay
0: yeah she'll be in brisbane she's on the entry list she signed up for tournaments so there's not I don't think, much thought that she's done forever at this point. Right. So it'll be good to see her, and hopefully she gets her, does whatever makes her happy. I mean, you had that earlier this year, according with Mallory Burdett, who was also a former NCR yes. guest back in 2013, I guess, we interviewed her, Indian Wells, um, and she was fresh out of college and had some shoulder issues, but then really just decided, it seemed to be mostly just a life decision choice, that she had things she wanted to do that weren't being on tour.
1: Yeah, And, and that's that she, fine. And that's fine, and I think that those two stories, both of, of Burdette and Petkovic, um, I think that they're very important and I think they're important ones to tell, you know, and for fans and other players to hear, because, you know, for being a tennis player is rough, man, like, like you're traveling the world. It's very isolating and it's very much about yourself and, um, thinking only about yourself and putting yourself above everyone else. And for Mallory Burdette, you know, the biggest struggle for her was, was, Thinking that, you know, spending her life thinking about herself was not her. Like, that's just she wanted to help people. And she kind of felt like she could contribute more to this world, going back to school, getting a degree, you know, and becoming like a child psychologist than swinging a tennis racket. That that swinging a tennis racket and being a professional tennis player, at least for Mallory Burdett, was this weird... Um,
0: Selfish, almost. Thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, luxury that she just was like, I don't want this, you know, and I think that Petkovic is having a few of those thoughts as well. Um, and and in both of their situations, these are two incredibly intelligent women who, yeah, they do have other options, you know, they they don't necessarily have to do this in order to cut like quote unquote survive.
0: Yeah, especially for Petkovic, Petkovic is in a situation where she's made millions of dollars in this sport, and a French Open semifinal, and could walk away with a career that. And been the top 10 and everything, been German number one, I think at some point, she could walk away with a career that everyone would say, wow, that was an awesome career. Yeah. You were a great pro. Way to go. And
1: kind of be a legend in her own right. Yeah. Right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, just in terms of her personality and what she was able to do and, you know, Grand Slam semifinalist. And I think, you know, it would be cool if she could finish with a Fed Cup title. I think that that would be really neat for Germany mm-hmm. and really great for her career. But, but we'll see. I mean, I, all that is to say, I don't think that we're at any point Eulogizing her career because it ain't over. i I'm, I've no doubt that she will continue to play for a little bit. But, um, but those doubts and and kind of trying to keep yourself mentally in check is, is those are always tough. But, uh, but how about you, Ben? Are you having a a Petkovician crisis of confidence since you shut down your season, Serena Williams style?
0: We got to get. I got Vinci myself too. The Vinci loss was tougher on me than it was Serena. Clearly, <laughs> uh, no. I mean, I'm not. I mean, obviously, I, I'm starting. This will be my fifth Australian Open. I think next year, which is a lot. I mean, that's just it's, and it gets repetitive at some point, even just from the writing point of view. Going down, they like, come up with what? What are my Australia stories? It is what's like an Aussie idea, and doing another lap on the track, it, it does wear on you. And I, I obviously everyone does think at some point. I'm sure writers would like, oh, especially the two of us who were at the, uh, you know, earlier part of our mm-hmm. careers, you know, could say, oh, that I could do anything in the world. I'm, I'm obviously happy doing tennis. I like doing tennis. I want to. As it sounds like a player, like make the most of this while I'm in it and not have regrets. Um, are there other things I could be doing? Sure. But right now I'm pretty happy in tennis. I don't think I will be doing it forever, but for right now it's a fun ride. I'd be happy to make the most of it. Overthinking it probably isn't good, but right now I'm happy. <laughs> you, Courtney?
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously this is my second career um, as opposed to Ben. And and so I've, I've done a, something else before this. And so in that way, I walked away from that under the same um, and actually after my, uh, you know, on record interview with Petkovic, like we kind of just sat and and spoke for about 30 minutes about that, about, you know, I was just kind of telling her, look, like I had a job that was seemingly the dream job for many people. Right. You get paid a ton of money. It's prestigious. um, You're quote unquote important all these sorts of things. And I was miserable and, and I wasn't happy. And so at the end of the day, I just walked away. And, and now I do something that is kind of the opposite of my old job on almost every level. <laughs> and, um, and I am happier. And at the same time, knowing that I made that transition of being able to go from one career to another, I also don't feel wedded to this. Like I am kind of in the same position I think as Ben, which is that I love what I do. It's great. I love I love the sport of tennis. There's no other sport that I would rather cover. I've definitely, like, come to that understanding, which is pretty cool. And there are very few other beats I want to cover. Like, I don't want to be a music writer, even though I love listening to music. I don't want to be a television writer, even though I watch a ton of TV. Like, like I like writing about tennis. Like, yeah. and I like being around tennis. And this is what I choose to, to cover. And, um, you know, but I don't think that... I think that it is a bit naive on every level to think that at... 18 years old when you graduate from high school you're supposed to know what you want to do for the rest of your life or at 22 when you graduate from college you're supposed to know what you want to do for the rest of your life or at 30 you're supposed to know what you want to do like I just don't I think that that's insane that's an insane amount of pressure and I think that that's an insane ask of people because there's so many things that I think that we're all capable of that you just don't know sometimes because you just haven't had the opportunity or the exposure like who knows I mean, maybe. I would be a far better field hockey writer <laughs> than I am tennis, but you know what like I don't have exposure to field hockey so I'm not going to, but maybe if I go explore it maybe it'll be something so all that is to say who knows I like where I'm at I like yeah. the thing that I do it's a it's a pleasure to wake up and do what I have to do and talk to the phone with the people that I get to talk to the fo- talk on the phone with and go to the tournaments that I go to so no complaints.
0: and I think that we've obviously both made it our own in our own ways and you know taken this pursuit and Especially NCR, I mean, talk about that. That's sort of a a largely bonus type thing we've done that's allowed us to make tennis into what we want it to be and get as much joy out of it as possible. So
1: For sure. I think that we've been able to craft this tennis thing on our own terms. You know, you've done it on your terms. I've done it on my terms. Whether or not those terms eventually have consequences, who knows. But for (laughs) now, it's worked out okay. Yeah, Um, yeah. so it's been good.
0: So that probably makes a pretty good segue into our big, exciting thing we're starting, that we are kickstarting. You ready to talk about this, Courtney? Of course. All right. So we are launching a Kickstarter campaign for the our 2016 season of NCR, which will be our fifth season of NCR, which is crazy. This is our 150th episode, this one right here. It's episode 134, but it's number 150 in terms of actual count with all the A, B, C, whatever nonsense. So we've been doing the show a lot. The show has obviously been an incredible amount of fun, gotten a lot out of it wouldn't change a thing. However, both of us are in positions and in jobs where this isn't how we make our money or our careers. We haven't made a dime out of NCR and through our 100, for 150 episodes, and we have been trying at the same time to make it as good a show possible, to make it the best show it can be. And at a certain point, I think we're probably at a bit of a uh, crossroads, I guess you could say, with keeping the show going uh, with the rest of our careers and other pursuits we want to do in time, and still trying to make the show the best we can be. So we are asking for your guys's help.
1: Exactly. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that um, one of the things, if you've been a longtime listener of the NCR podcast, you know that, that um, especially for me, like I've always, I clearly in my head have in like a vision as to what I think kind of tennis fans deserve in terms of the coverage in terms of the access that that i think that fans should have a you know i'm big i'm totally fine with transcripts being public like press conferences being posted like i want fans to like get everything and and i think that um and you also know how much i love podcasts and Um, I do genuinely believe that podcasts are this kind of untapped medium of journalism, particularly within sports, because, you know, obviously, there's a lot of storytelling and great stuff happening outside of sports podcasts, you know, like you've heard all of the podcasts that Ben and I listen to that we love and adore, but that's something that isn't really done so much within sports, sports podcasts are very typically conversational, it's a bunch of people on a microphone, yelling at each other and debating topics and just talking, which is great, which which is what we do. Um, and it's what NCR has been. And it's what I think most of the podcasts that have now, that now exists on the, I mean, if you go back, you know, a year and a half and you look at the tennis podcast world and you compare it to now it's exploded, right? There's tons of fan podcasts that are all really, really great. Um, there are more professional podcasts. SI launched a podcast. There's the tennis podcast. There's a bunch of different podcasts that are out there. Um, tennis.com, obviously. Mm-hmm. And all of that is wonderful. But I still think that, and I hold, and Ben knows this because I get really, really obsessed about this. And it probably annoys the absolute bejesus out of him <laughs> about this idea that that sports podcasts can be more. That we can tell stories and we can do reporting on these, in this medium, about sports and and i don't think that is being done at all i mean right now it's just conversational or interviews and i think that it could be more but in order to do that honestly like we don't have the means to do it right now um um just because we uh, we have to prioritize our time elsewhere obviously i now have a full-time job i'm no longer freelance so that changes the dynamic a little bit as well and so with your help i think that we can you know kind of transform ncr into something better than it already is and you know, you've heard this, you know, some of our dalliances into trying to do things that are different. Ben's done a tremendous job doing it, whether it was that tour of Wimbledon or Wimbledon. Sorry, I don't know why I said just Wimbledon. Uh, that tour of Wimbledon yeah. uh, with Alex Willis uh, this summer or him going down to to Charlottesville for the ATP Challenger and getting the Challenger feel. That stuff that especially with the Challenger thing, I mean, Ben has to go down there. He's got to stay down there. He's got to pay all this stuff out of pocket to deliver this podcast, um, episode for everyone. So what we want to do is like try and see if we can find a way to do these things more regularly and therefore, you know, provide a better product, um, to you guys, but we just, we, we need some help. And, um, and we also want to know that there's an appetite for it. You know I mean? Maybe you guys are happy with the way that things are and you don't want all of those other things. And that's an option too. <laughs> but you know, if we knew that there was a core dedicated group of people who like wanted to bring this to the next level, then we would absolutely happily, you know, charge through and try and figure out a way to get it done. Right.
0: right no, and I think that we in terms of people don't want that. I think we are still, no matter we have a funding goal right now of, of three thousand dollars, which is pretty modest by Kickstarter standards. And I think that you know, even when we surpass that it becomes some sort of behemoth big budget show suddenly, which would be weird. Um, but I, we would still maintain the same sort of soul and identity and, and tone and fun that NCR yeah. was born out of. I mean, this was us putting a microphone, like essentially on the conversations we had every night in Melbourne, I guess that first year in 2012. Yeah. And then we got home and we we're like, Hey, why don't we make a podcast of what we yeah. just were doing for the past month? Like, okay, sure. And then it's, that's how it kicked off.
1: Yeah. And I think that, you know, and, and Ben and I have talked, um, about it for really years about different ways to kind of make this podcasting thing a viable um, option for us. Um, And I think that, you know, we've talked about a lot of different ways to do it and every single kind of option that would pop up, there was always this concern of, but will that change kind of the soul of the podcast? Will that, will it be selling out? Will it be, will it be, you know, will suddenly somebody have a say in what the final, um, outcome is or or do our opinions have to be tempered you know those sorts of things and so this is I guess in the way that I think about it in my head if I'm gonna sell out I'm gonna sell out to our fans (laughs) I'm not gonna sell out to like a corporate entity (laughs) so um so this is kind of what the way I think of it if you guys pay us and you know I will feel so much more indebted to you and feel so much more pressure and desire to provide this awesome product for you than if, I don't know, you know, all if, of a sudden we were like draft kings, no challenges remaining to <laughs> this podcast. I would not buy into that at all.
0: <laughs> no, that doesn't sound good. So we have a bunch of, uh, like I said, our total goal is $3,000. I would obviously love to get more than that. That's a, like I said, a fairly modest goal. We also have a lot of rewards, Courtney, for backers
1: we do that is kind of the kickstarter model um we want to try and deliver some value to aside from our specific podcast um in exchange for your contribution. So if you go to our Kickstarter page, um, you can see the full slate of rewards, but depending on kind of how much you contribute and what your support level is, there are a bunch of different things on offer. You can get postcards, handwritten postcards from us from one of the four slam cities. You can be our producer for an episode. You get to choose the topics. You get to choose um, what we debate, um, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, We'll work with you on that. You can be a full-fledged sponsor, 30-second advertisement Commercial, whatever it is, um, for the entire year and every single episode. That's pretty cool. And even smaller things. You guys have heard us rant and rave. Um, you, I'm sure, have rants and raves as well. <laughs> I mean, you listen to us, so clearly you have opinions. If you want the world to know your opinions, you can come on to the podcast for a, uh, a five minute rant. Um, you know, we have a bunch of different opportunities for you yeah. to get involved in the podcast a um, Skype
0: chat with us which is pretty a one hour Skype session yeah with us. if you guys want to just talk to us about whatever you know you want to talk to Courtney about Slater Kinney and I'll just sit here and nod quietly while yeah. you do that or I can, can give
1: you my coffee brewing tips yeah we can there's, talk about Eurovision or whatever for.
0: or tennis obviously anything in tennis whatever yep. how to get started in this business you know what we did to get where we are and what my people able to help you anything anything you want those are all sorts of things on offer We can do custom segments anyway go check out our Kickstarter page we'll have a link to it in our uh, show description and also on Twitter. We'll be tweeting it out lots, and this will not be the last you hear of it. It ends um, at when the Australian Open starts. So we have about a uh, little under six weeks left in campaign.
1: Yeah, and for those who, who aren't familiar with Kickstarter, basically $3,000 is our minimum goal. If in the time of the campaign we do not get to our minimum goal, you actually get your money back. So in other words, either the project gets backed or you get your money back. So that's kind of like a low risk situation for you. So, you know, if if it goes and we only earn 2000 bucks, you get your money back. And we continue with the podcast as best we can in 2016. But obviously, if we hit our minimum funding goal we can deliver something that is going to be pretty awesome. We have a lot of great ideas for next year and um, it would be great to kind of get everybody involved and everybody vested to, to build something that can really be, I mean, we're the number one rated uh, tennis podcast on iTunes. That's pretty cool. So, you know, you guys already like us, just buy us a cup of coffee. We're good. And we'll we'll
0: do more. You'll get benefit out of it. I mean, like we're going to do more shows, mini shows during slams, which is something we've never really been able to do. That's the one very tangible uh, increase, uh, yeah, there's a bunch of cool things. Like one of the rewards, which I think is the most powerful is one uh, we have where you can get an emergency podcast, like card, where if something crazy happens in Tennessee, you need us to talk about it. You can like play your, you know, bat signal card, throw it up and we'll get on the microphone in 48 hours and do your show of your emergency crazy topic. Even if it's just like a barberspace of a gif or something that just makes you feel things, we'll talk about that, whatever. It can be anything. We thank you guys in advance for helping us do what we want to do. Uh, If you want to follow along with us, like, if you want to support the campaign, obviously, like I said, we'll tweet it out. We'll put it in the description. Uh, If you want to follow along with us other ways, you can do so by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. You can also uh, follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. If you want to send us a question for an upcoming show next week, actually, we're going to do an Olympic themed show. We've gotten a bunch of Olympicsy questions. And so with Rio being an Olympic year and all sorts of stuff going on there, next week will be our official look forward to that way in advance. We'll do more, obviously, when it comes to August and the Olympics are actually happening. But uh, for right now, that's going to be our Olympic show next week, which will be fun. Uh, send us your questions to our email, remaining at gmail.com, or tweet them. And if you want to subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting network, you can do that through our RSS feed or any other way. Leave us reviews on iTunes. We appreciate those. Yeah. Okay, Courtney. You had anything else to rant, rave about before we let the people go?
1: I can rave. Okay. Very quickly. Short rave. Um, because it's the holiday season. I'm sure everybody's kind of like in the process of trying to figure out presents and things like that. I just wanted to give a rave for this service that I signed up for that I really like and Gosh, I wish that they would give me their stuff for free, but they don't. So this isn't a paid thing, I assure you. But it's called turntablekitchen.com. And if you know somebody or if you are somebody who likes vinyl, likes physical copies of music, and uh, also likes cooking and food stuffs, Turntable Kitchen is like this the subscription service that you sign up for. And every month you get a record that they hand, they hand choose. And you also get like a recipe or and like a a food good that kind of goes along with it to create this whole kind of thing and i actually just got my first package today right before we got onto the the call it's a great it's a it's a single like a little uh 45 single and i opened up the the box and it smelled exactly like like just uh like indian food like it's very specific indian food and i was like what the and i opened up the thing and it was like this um curry powder this madras curry powder and it came with like three recipe cards and a little printout and it was just really nicely packaged and plus it has this this uh i haven't listened to the record yet but um usually they've always picked really really great stuff so yeah
0: is it gonna be like indian music
1: i don't know i don't think that it is i don't think that it is but it's it's i think that the song they picked was is kind of something a little bit dancey but i could be wrong but i haven't listened to it but yeah no i mean it's just kind of it's just kind of nice and they have different ones they have like ones that's like food one of them's a coffee one so you can get like coffee beans with your record another one is candles you can get like a candle with your record anyway it's just kind of fun as opposed to just like a straight up subscription service record subscription service which although if you're looking for one of those check out vinyl me please that one's very good for just a record subscription service. Um, but it's just really nice. And for me, I travel a lot. So um, subscription services are kind of weirdly awesome for me because I can come home and there are all these packages and I open them up and they're kind of curated for me and they're always great and very fun. So who doesn't love mail? But you can get gift subscriptions and stuff like that too. But I don't know. I have really liked it. It made me happy. It was cool. Cool.
0: I will do a rave more for a more established product, which is IKEA. I have a weird like affinity for Ikea that I don't entirely understand, but I think it's super duper. I like Sweden and Melody Festival and I don't think it's related, but there's something about putting together Ikea furniture that I just find to be like the most calming thing to do as an adult. It's sort of like adult Legos or something, but not like the freeform Legos where you get like a specific kit as instructions and it's supposed to look a certain way. Ikea for me is like adult Legos. It's very calming, getting all the pieces come in a box and looking at the very basic pictographs to put them together, seeing which screw is which, doing it all with your little Allen wrench. And then you have furniture. I think it's so cool to the point where I at one point listed myself on Craigslist saying like, hey, I'll put together your IKEA furniture for you. I think it's fun. You did? Yeah. And I got, No way. <laughs> yeah. I only got one response <laughs> and it was from... Somebody was like, hey, I have, like, it was intimidating. It was like, I have, like, three tables and, like, four dressers to put together. Do you want to do it? And I was like, that sounds like a lot. Um, (laughs) But, uh, okay, sure, like, when works for you. And they never heard back. So maybe they found somebody else. But I might still do that again. And if you are somewhere where I'll be and have, like, a nightstand or something from Ikea that needs to put together, I will bring my own Allen wrench. I'm so ready. Let's do it.
1: That's impressive. I've been putting together a lot of baby furniture. Okay. And I have to say there is nothing that prepares you for putting together baby furniture because it just doesn't make sense. Like I've put, I've moved and done Ikea stuff forever, crate and barrel, pottery bar, no problem. But trying to figure out how to put together baby stuff because there's all this safety stuff. Like, they're just not built, like, normal adult things. Right. So, there's just, like, things where you're like, I don't under This conceptually makes no sense what's happening here. And I don't know why this thing exists.
0: Oh, it's so frustrating. Yeah. No, part of what I love about Ikea is, like, I've never once been confused by an Ikea instruction. Like right. No, pic- it's so intuitive. The are so, like, minimalist and perfect. And, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed. So, if people want to send me Ikea furniture, I'll put them together for you. Or not, that'd be weird. But, you know, if, if you're somewhere <laughs> and just want to hand me, like, a couple pieces of a... You know, a Bjorn Fjordson or whatever, I'll happily whip it together during a press conference or something. It'd be fun. It could be my thing. And with that, we'll see you guys next time. Uh, thanks for supporting us on the Kickstarter. We'll have links to that. See you guys later. Next week, Olympic show. Bye.
1: Love the Olympics. I need excitement, Teenage kicks right.